Welcome to Jerusalem Studio Podcast. Join us to discuss the latest updates from Israel and the region. Shalom and welcome to Jerusalem Studio. It was 51 years ago this week that Hafez al-Assad seized power in Damascus and launched his family's rule over Syria. Following his own three decades as dictator, his son Bashar has clung to power now for 21 years, half of which contained a bloody civil war mixed with foreign interventions. With Russia, Turkey, the United States, Iran and Israel all involved in moves and operations, along with Kurdish, various opposition groups and a beaten but not gone Islamic State, what is the state of affairs in this war-torn country? To deliberate this topic, we're joined from central Israel by Colonel Retire, Dr. Iran Lerman, who is the co-host of TV7 Middle East Review, Powers and Play panelist, and the Jerusalem Institute for Strategy and Security Vice President, as well as the Editor-in-Chief of the Jerusalem Strategic Tribune. Thank you for joining us, sir. Thank you. Also joining us from Central Israel is Colonel in Reserve Reuven Ben Shalom, who is a TV7 Powers and Play panelist a cross-cultural strategist and associate at the Institute for Counterterrorism at Reichmann University. Thank you for joining us as well, sir. Thank you. And with me in the studio is our TV7's editor-at-large and host of Watchmen Talk and Powers in Play, Mr. Amir Oren. Amir, give us a broader understanding with regard to the latest developments pertaining to Syria. So uh, we have uh, talked about Syria uh, for several years now, and uh, the most salient fact that one uh, should talk about is that for Russia, Syria is all important. All the rest follows. Because the Russians, uh, this is uh, uh, nothing new, ever since the mid-1950s, they uh, have seen Syria as uh, perhaps their most important post in the Arab world because of its relative proximity to what was then the Soviet Union, uh, its borders with uh, Turkey, Iran, Iraq, and, um, and so on. Um, the, the Russians have decided to prop up Bashar Assad at all costs. And starting some six years ago, they have entered in force, and Bashar Assad is dependent on them. Now, this is the most important point, because for all the other parties, it is nice to have a foothold in uh, Syria. The Turks, for instance, the Iranians, Hezbollah at the time. And of course, when they do, other parties, such as Israel or the United States or Jordan, also see fit to intervene. But if one looks at the Russian policy vis-a-vis Syria, and one sees Israel conforming to that and reaching a de facto understanding with Russia that Israel will tolerate Assad in power, Israel will not try to topple him, and maybe even welcome uh, his coming back to rule over the entire country. Because you surely remember that only a couple of years ago, we all talked about the cantonization of uh, Syria, the division of the country to provinces uh, or regions. And now it seems as if the central authority in Damascus, uh, backed by Russia, has more of a chance to reassert its power. 
Indeed. Dr. Lerman, I'd like to ask you, uh, I had the privilege uh, several years ago to speak with a person who just passed uh, away several uh, months ago or not too long ago, uh, uh, General Colin Powell, who happened also to be the U.S. Secretary of State. And uh, during that uh, brief uh, discussion, I asked him how would he term Syria, and he called it uh, a state which uh, has turned into an international playground. Would you regard it that way also today, or is that something that uh, you would see as a dominant Russian presence with some lingering other players trying to manifest their strategic uh, hold within uh, the boundaries of what used to be a sovereign territory? Well, for a decent civil war, you have to have about uh, 40, 60 relationships, so to speak. I mean, in Libya, for example, is um, uh, the, the domain or the, the scene of multiple interventions on, on two sides. And uh, Syria, on the other hand, has become very much uh, the scene, as uh, Amir has uh, so eloquently described it, of uh, the, the Russians' most significant achievement in, in uh, foreign affairs beyond the, their immediate environment um, uh, since Putin came to power. And uh, its symbolic importance for them is as, uh, as uh, significant as uh, its practical benefits, such as the bases in uh, Tartus and Khmeimi. And therefore, the Russians are definitely uh, the predominant intervening power. Having said so, there are reasons to believe that the Americans are not going to go away. Um, I have seen recent uh, uh, indications that uh, the guidelines for the Biden administration policy, uh, led by people like uh, Bert McGurk and others uh, in Syria, uh, assumes a continued presence in support of the um, Syrian democratic forces, which essentially are uh, the Kurdish forces in the northeast. And nor is Turkey going to leave. Uh, um, the policy they pursue in places like Afrin is essentially not very different from their policies in northern Cyprus. They are re changing the uh, population profile of the, of the region. They are essentially um, Turkifying um, and, and, and Sunnifying an area which was essentially Kurdish. And I'm not even sure that uh, Assad really wants to regain control of all of Syria if he basically can sh shunt off a large chunk of the Sunni population into an enclave ruled by others. And so the proportion of Alawites and other minorities who support his rule becomes much uh, higher. So we are essentially at the point of equilibrium in Syria with the majority um, or, or the, the almost the entire territory of Syria now dominated by Assad backed by the Russians and uh, with two areas that remain outside his effective control and may remain so for some time. Indeed. The one thing that does change, I believe, and uh, again, very slim but, but significant indications of that, is that as the war draws to a standstill, more or less, the importance of the Iranians and Hezbollah 
for the Syrian uh, capacity, uh, for the regime's capacity to survive in Syria is diminishing. And Assad begins to realize that the cost for Syria and the cost for his own survival of making uh, Syria into an Iranian playground is going up. Indeed, and, and with that being said, of course, uh, at the recommendation of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, the Iranians have removed their field commander of the RGC Quds Force, who commanded all uh, operations, both of uh, uh, Iranian troops on the ground, uh, who are labeled as quote-unquote advisors, as well as uh, specifically Iranian proxy militias, uh, Afghan militias and Iraqi militias and uh, also local militias, also from elsewhere, of course. But uh, that brings a question now that uh, at a time when the Iranians acquiesced to uh, the, the Syrian request to remove this person who was regarded as problematic, they also instructed in strategic locations to uh, ask their their proxies to change their clothing and to raise the Syrian flag, which ultimately uh, suddenly creates a certain problem within uh, identifying who is actually Syrian and who is not Syrian. Colonel Ben Shalom, would you like to touch on that? Well, the, this just adds another complexity to a region that is already very complex. And I think what's interesting here is that we have a hard time even understanding the forces at play. As Israelis, I think looking back even several months, it could be that our assessments that were, were wrong. Looking back several years, of course, we all thought that soon we're going to topple the Assad regime, right? That's, not, that's already not our calculation anymore. But as for the complexity on the ground, even as far as uniforms and entities, this goes all the way to the operational level. Remember that uh, reportedly, Israel is uh, carrying out multiple strikes in Syria, even stepping up the strikes lately, as Russian forces are on the ground. The Russians that we have a very close uh, dialogue with, uh, from the prime ministers and president of Russia, all the way down to deconfliction mechanisms between the militaries. And we carry this out, out in Syria right near their presence, which is also very complex. And we have multiple forces and players uh, that just adds another uh, layer of complexity. I think trying to judge what's happening now between Iran and Syria, that's the interesting point. Because as far as Russia, it's very easy. We know what the Russians want to achieve. When they want to uphold an authoritarian regime, they do it. They have their tools. They have their means. They've done it elsewhere. They go in and they do it. And there was no question, by the way, that they will succeed in their mission. About Iran, even our calculation, that maybe recently we thought that it's not going to succeed as much as we thought of actually thwarting their entrenchment in Syria, it could be that what we've been seeing in the last few weeks is a measure of success. I'm not sure at all that these reports about ousting a commander mean that there's a rift between Iran and Syria. It could be that this is a message game played by both of them in a combined manner. But it also could be that the simplistic view of this is the right one. And that is that finally we came to a point where Assad understands that they are a liability more than an asset. That it could be that the Iranians that are using them, of course, as a tool, they're using them as a playground to promote their ideology and prepare the, 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 the next confrontation with Israel. It could be that they're stepping it up too much and that the airstrikes recently in Syria that are certainly very problematic for Syria, it's too much for them. 
So it could be that this we see now a change in their calculation, and it could be that this will mean a shift in even Israel's calculation of what's going on inside of Syria. Very interesting indeed, Ms. Tolman. Uh, there's uh, an interesting uh, uh, side, uh, side story, side light to, uh, to what is happening. Assuming that uh, Assad is back in the saddle uh, with some power sharing, perhaps uh, more, more symbolic, more the appearance of power sharing with uh, his opposition. Are we going to see a revival of the uh, peace talks between Israel and Syria? Um, during which the Syrians will demand the return of the Golan Heights. Israel uh, will insist on full peace, uh, the Egyptian and Jordanian model, plus demilitarization and so on. And uh, one uh, can go back um, some uh, five years ago to the transition between the Obama administration and the Trump administration, and at the secret uh, telephone conversations, which the uh, FBI wiretapped, between retired General Michael Flynn, who was uh, supposed to be and was for a few weeks the national security advisor in the incoming Trump administration, and uh, the uh, Russian ambassador to Washington, Sergei Kislyak. And the topic at the time was the uh, UN Security Council resolution regarding the settlements in the West Bank, not the Golan Heights at all. What Trump wanted in these talks was to get Russian support for his view, which was not Obama's. The Russians couldn't care less about the settlements, about the substance of the Palestinian-Israeli track. And what they did want was American support for what was then called the Astana process. Mm. If you, Trump, support us on Syria, we don't care what you do on the so-called peace process. And one can learn from that. One can infer from that, at least, that uh, the Russians will go through the motions, but they are not going to lean on Israel, to concede too much too soon, and they will only... Uh, do what is absolutely necessary to keep the talks uh, going. But uh, Israel should not fear um, a Russian-Syrian front against it. Indeed. Dr. Lehrman? Okay, it's very clear in my mind that as long as the present regime uh, governs Syria, there's absolutely no pressure by any party in the international community for Israel to re-enter negotiations. Um, this is a sort of benefit we draw, in a sense, uh, from uh, the, the, the tragedy that had befallen Syria. Not that we had an interest in that tragedy, but as it happens, uh, given that uh, for the foreseeable future, the Assad regime and the Assad family will remain in power and Syria will remain powerless, the uh, pressure... Um, both in terms of international uh, concern and in terms of the potential of conflict on Israel uh, to, uh, to go back to the negotiating table uh, uh, for the future of the Golan is at practically at zero. And the Russians are um, wise enough to understand this. Uh, this is, not, this is uh, clearly not in the cards. Uh, even, you don't even hear uh, from our... Uh, 
um, uh, tender-hearted European friends uh, that the Golan should be at play. Uh, the if Palestinian I may interject, issue is, uh, however, stands uh, at a Dr. different Lehmann, category. If I may interject, though, um, the, the president of the, the uh, institute, which uh, you are the vice president of the Jerusalem Institute for Strategy and Security, published a paper about the approach Israel should uh, have towards the Russians with regard to realpolitik. And I, I'd like right. to hear your perspective on this. To what degree uh, do we cross that line from realpolitik into actually understanding the consequences of, of the reality on the ground there? And uh, at the same time, also to look at it from a perspective of it seems like the Assad re uh, regime at this stage is slowly re uh, being re-welcomed, re if you will, into uh, the Arab League. We just saw the United Arab Emirates foreign minister visit there. Right. And, of course, we saw the objection, or at least a vocal objection, not the actual objection, of uh, the, the Americans with regard to this. So uh, where does this actually put the entire uh, mess that is happening in Damascus at this stage? Well, uh, I would say that from Israel's point of view, the realization that Assad is there to stay has kicked in uh, much earlier. Not that we admire or like uh, the man or, or that we can ignore the monstrosity of what, uh, what were the measures that kept him in power. Uh, but uh, we are not given the privilege of being the moral judges of our strategic environment. Uh, we have to uh, to deal with, with the cards we, uh, that are on the table. And the, uh, with, in the, our conversations with the Russians, uh, we've made it very clear that in addition to all the sentimental aspects of uh, friendship and affinity between Israel and, and Russia, going back to... Uh, um, the great patriotic war and the role of, uh, of, of the so heroic uh, Red Army in, in obliterating Hitler's regime. At the end of the day, this is about a very practical aspect. We have one overriding interest as regards Syria. We want to avoid a situation in which it becomes a staging ground for a major Iranian threat to Israel. Having Hezbollah in uh, control, in a, in, a dead, in a deadly grip of Lebanon is bad enough. If this should happen in Syria, it would have very serious consequences for not only for Israel, but also for the stability of Jordan. And therefore, we have made it very clear to the Russians that we are going to continue to do our work uh, against the Iranian presence in Syria. It is their business to uh, ensure that Assad understands our uh, motives and understands that if he allows the Iranians to run his country for him, the con uh, uh, he may not survive and the Russian investment in his survival may be destroyed. This is the real politic conversation we are having with Moscow, and it has been a very effective one for the last six years. Indeed. Colonel uh, Ben Shalom, I'd like to hear your response to this as well and your perspective to this. But as an Air Force pilot who has served for quite some time and understand the strategic assets, uh, not only the tactical assets of, of uh, employing red lines in Syria and, and elsewhere throughout the region vis-a-vis -vis the Islamic Republic of Iran, uh, I'd like to, to hear your uh, perspective to the fact that uh, a operational pilot who was interviewed uh, on domestic television here in Israel did uh, at the time 
acknowledge that only one out of every four potential strikes actually receives a green light to be executed. Of course, uh, additional strikes then would uh, enter uh, or bring in the, the various targets uh, that were uh, not brought in in the past strike. But I, I'd like to hear from, from your perspective, to what degree is that actually effective at this stage when we're seeing that the Iranians continue to flood their precision-guided munitions, uh, clearly calculating their times during purported or reported uh, strikes in Syria. Immediately after that, we always see three, four Iranian planes entering into Syria. So it seems like it's a cat and dog uh, scenario where uh, the Iranians are quite relentless in trying to establish still that crescent from uh, the uh, Iranian territory through Iraq into Syria and Lebanon into the Mediterranean Sea, something that, of course, engulfen, uh, engulfs the entire northern front of Israel and has brought about that one northern front, which was only several years ago introduced after being two fronts, the Lebanese and the Syrian front, of course. I think for several years now, this way of thinking that you just presented maybe was very popular in Israel, from columnists to strategic thinkers including many of my commanders, some of them that uh, now write brilliant pieces at, at INSS. Uh, and uh, I think maybe for some time we thought that perhaps our relentless strikes are not achieving what we wanted to achieve because there they are. The Iranians are on the ground and they're continuing to acquire their, their uh, munitions and their capabilities and even sometime implementing them. But I think in recent weeks, and I think this is a dramatic change in recent weeks, I think we finally see that this is doing the job and it is making a dent, at least in the calculation of Iran. Now, the problem with this kind of discussion is that we don't know all the facts. When I was actually in position and I knew what was going on, I got to tell you, about 50% of reports I would see in the media were false. I mean, we would sit and look at it and say, what is this ridiculous? People are making up stuff. When you don't know all the facts, you can't have the entire calculation. And now I'm not in the system anymore. So we don't even know what the strikes are actually taking out. My assessment is that Israeli strikes are relatively successful and probably negating, taking out, eliminating strategic capabilities one by one that Iran wanted to plant in Syria and then launch them in a future war. So even if we have strikes that, you know, some of them are not authorized, some of them are not successful, and maybe they have a hundred more assets, if we take out the key assets, and remember, we're talking about Air Force, but it's much more than the Air Force. I think the main strategic asset of Israel is intelligence. It's precision intelligence that enables these strikes. And of course, much more than Air Force, because with all due respect to pilots, today you press a button, you eliminate whatever target you want, wherever you want. So that is not the problem. I think the Iranians and the Syrians understand our resolve when we say we will never enable these capabilities to materialize and we go ahead and do it. So I think this is the way to see it. I think we are seeing a strategic shift in what's happening on the ground now. Not that the Iranians are going to leave with their uh, tail between their legs. I don't expect that. One more point to remember is that many players have interests. Russians, for instance, are pure interests. We have interests, and it's mainly survival, right? We want stability. We talk about existential threats we want to eliminate. For Iran, it's ideology. And when you're talking about ide ideology, this is not an equation of, you know, interest. Why don't they realize that all we want is peace? If only they would realize that, maybe they would just leave it, live with us in peace and harmony. 
That's what makes this so complicated. And even if you do the entire calculation, you not necessarily reach the results of what's going to happen on the ground. Wherever you want, whenever you want, and however deep you want. But Mr. Olin, sure. I, I, we're drawing near to the end of the program, and I'd like also to hear from you a response to this. But also in addition to that, we saw earlier this week the envoy of uh, the State Department for Iran speaking about uh, uh the, the efforts to, to coordinate with uh, Israel, with uh, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Bahrain, with regard to the looming negotiations in Vienna and uh, immediately thereafter, of course, overlapping in the last day, which was on a Tuesday, we saw also the UN ambassador to uh, the United, uh, the US ambassador to the United Nations, uh, Greenfield, Thomas Greenfield, coming to Israel, having those meetings. And immediately thereafter, we see the IDF chief of staff, the defense minister, and the prime minister going to the north of Israel and saying, no matter what happens in Vienna, Iran needs to know that we will continue to deal with them in Syria, Lebanon, and elsewhere in the northern front of Israel, of course, also in the southern front. But what can you tell us about that? Well, the Iranians know that Israel is not going to give up. Uh, and uh, the uh, Rob Malley visit here and in the Gulf, was intended to reassure the allies and partners. And the need to, uh, for reassurance is because, yes, the Americans and the Iranians are going to cut a deal. Now, regarding uh, what uh, Reuven Ben Shalom just uh, said, uh, you all remember that uh, in Vietnam, the Americans, because of uh, the density of the foliage in the uh, Ho Chi Minh Trail, used herbicides, Agent Orange. Now, going from the uh, practical to the uh, symbolic, Israel doesn't have any illusion that it can uproot everything. It wants to mow the lawn. He, it knows very well that the Iranians will be back, that it will spring up. But for the time being and for the persistence that Israel shows, it's worth it. Indeed. Well, also with regard to the aspects of calculation, of having a coordinated mechanism. We heard uh, Dr. Lerman, of course, speak plenty of times about this credible military threat. Is it there and are the Americans on board? The Americans may give Israel um, a yellow or amber light. They will not give Israel a green light because the president will have to go to Congress and justify uh, what he has done. And Israel, after years of not having trained in long-range flights, is going to do it again. Will it be um, ready in time? Um, that's an open question. Well, not saying no in Washington may be interpreted in Jerusalem as a yes, but this is all the time that we have for today. I'd like to, to thank Dr. Ran Lerman, Colonel Ben Shalom, and Mr. Oren for being part of today's program. And I'd like to thank our viewers as well, and we will see you next time. Thank you for joining us in another Jerusalem Studio podcast. For more content on Israel and its region, we invite you to visit our website at tv7israelnews.com and follow us on social media.